great pity. It's working. All right. Take three. <laughs> so, where the hell was I? All right. <laughs> Pilgrimage, that's the word. All right. So, um, um, I believe uh, some days ago I mentioned about uh, being on something of an interreligious pilgrimage uh, uh, during uh, uh, parts of this year, including uh, Bodh Gaya, uh, it, India, and uh, Saranath to primary places for the Buddha, uh, Varanasi for the, the Hindu tradition, main religious town, and then to the Sinai Desert to uh, uh, climb uh, Mount Sinai where um, Moses received the tablets to uh, Jerusalem, of course, uh, major interreligious uh, center for uh, the Muslim community, the, the, the Jewish community, and the minority of uh, the Christian community. And while, while there with uh, uh, Nina, my partner, we decided at three o'clock in the afternoon to try to go and uh, visit the, the mosque with the, the huge uh, uh, blue uh, dome. And this is the spot where, um, uh, if I've got my biblical history correct, where um, God uh, came to Abraham and said what manner of sacrifice would Abraham be willing to make for, for God and to even to offer to uh, kill his own son. A very dramatic, perhaps the most, one of the most dramatic statements of demand for renunciation that's uh, can be found in any re religious text there. And in, when we arrived, there's a very large, rather heavily guarded gate to allow pilgrims and visitors through this uh, gate to where uh, the mosque is. And we didn't realize that at the time it's only open a certain number of hours a day. And we were just five or six minutes late. So the uh, Israeli uh, military standing at the entrance to this uh, place uh, wouldn't allow the two of us through. So I said, and it was our last day in, uh, in Jerusalem. And Nina's father had asked her to say some prayers at the main religious places that she was visiting because, as he did three days ago, had to go into hospital for a quadruple Heart, heart, bypass. So she was quite determined that she was going to say the prayers in this mosque. She got turned away, so she went back, we went back to the market, and I can't remember the, 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 the name in uh, Arabic, but it's the cloth which m Muslim women wear around the neck, under the, and thrown over the shoulder, so just a little bit of the face is covered. She bought one of those, and quite determinedly and single-pointedly walked up to the guard and said, I need to go to pray. And he said, are you a Muslim? And she said, uh, yes, in the interreligious uh, uh, tradition, there's only one God with many names. And the guard couldn't accept this and then began to ask her more questions. And I stood back 25 or 30, 30 meters and sat on a little wall 
watching this going on. And of course, after a, a little while, with her rather firm determination, the guard got suspicious and then demanded to see her passport and what was she doing in Israel, etc., uh, etc. Et and uh, the outcome of it was she didn't get in. <laughs> she got sent, got, got sent back. And the, the reason I um, uh, men mention this is that sometimes there is knowledge arising. With the knowledge, the mind comes together in a focused and single-pointed way, and then it moves towards the known. It could be anything in life. In this case, it was uh, uh, the sacred uh, and beautiful uh, mosque of the Muslim community. And with that, the knowledge arising in the mind, bringing together interest, focus, concentration, determination, and movement towards that which is known, so that the knowledge about has the chance, in this case, an opportunity or attempt to meet with the known, that particular object. And that movement in life is one of the primary interests of human existence. And therefore we find ourselves again and again in our life bringing knowledge and information together and the securing of it in order for it to be a, a force in our life to meet that which we want to meet with. So it could be something out there, it's called a mosque, it's called a home, or, what, or a place, or whatever, or it could be a job, a career, it could be a relationship. So this dynamic, securing of knowledge, information, interest, focus, concentration, attention, to that which is known, is, as I said, a very primary interest in one's life. And we find our, ourselves, deliberately and intentionally at times, pulled along rather magnetically in other times, in this movement. When we are unable to, to make the knowledge and the known meet together, it easily and frequently tests our mettle. What's the result? What's the impact on the inner life? Sometimes that impact on the inner life is the feeling of success, the feeling of triumph, of securing that meeting with that object called the known. Sometimes, of course, in the meeting of the two forming together, the outcome of that is failure. The outcome of that is disappointment. And that there isn't that kind of meeting. How do we attend to that? Sometimes we just have to alter our direction. Accept the fact, change the direction, as uh, in this case uh, 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 we went to... Uh, um, another mosque, the uh, smaller mosque, the uh, Muslim caretaker was very happy, and two Europeans, the Europeans could walk in and easy. So in this world that we live in, there is knowledge. This gives support to the knower, 
and an interest in the known. We can feel the benefit of it. But we can also feel the restriction of it as well. If I may just say on the personal level for a moment, um, I never went to uh, uh, university, um, nor to uh, college. And in uh, Britain at that uh, uh, time, it was possible to leave school at the age of uh, 15 and go into full-time work, full-time uh, employment. And so as soon as the magic number 15 years uh, arose, I was out. <laughs> and uh, uh, started work, and then in my uh, early 20s, uh, joined the uh, so-called uh, uh, hippie trail to uh, India. And at that time, taking one, uh, uh, going from west to east, uh, through Europe, uh, Turkey, Iran, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and, uh, and into India, and then, of course, uh, into the uh, uh, monastery. Sometimes, this knowledge and the knower takes the periods of one's life a tremendous amount of importance. Sometimes we never actually move outside of its scope. And what I mean by that is that the mind can keep, in its concentrated form, college and university, keep concentrating on the acquisition and the securing of more knowledge. And I think in that we may have had, tragically, what one could possibly call a kind of heart bypass operation without realizing it. <laughs> Meaning not in a healthy sense of, uh, uh, of um, going to the uh, uh, surgeon and being uh, cut up and, and, and helped to breathe more easily, but in the unhealthy sense that sometimes the manner is attention, focus, on knowledge and not as Dharma teachings keep reminding us to go through the heart to the mind. We bypass the heart. So one can end up so concentrated on knowledge, getting a degree, getting a BA, MA, BHD and all of those other distractions, <laughs> in which one has missed that the access to the mind must come through the heart. And when there isn't that direct causal flowing uh, uh, link, how easily the heart gets neglected. The consequence of that neglect is long-term for the individual and for society. We have universities for the mind, we worship at these places. It's remarkable that some beautiful, heartful people uh, do emerge out of them. But one also can equally say, and can 
could describe sometimes the consequences of them as, I know people don't like hearing this, ego-making factories. In other words, the desire for the self to secure knowledge, knowledge, and for me, 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 becomes such a priority that the residue of that, as I say, lasts long term. Somewhere or other, the heart was bypassed. Hence, we have the political leaders that we have, we have the private sector that we have, that we have the, the, the social injustices uh, that we have, that we have the insensitivities at the beginning of life, the middle of life, and the end of life. What was it? One lawyer said today, 4,000 um, uh, men and women facing the death sentence. It's barbaric, it's medieval. So somewhere or other, the centers of learning need somewhere to find ways, reference was made by one of the uh, uh, university teachers here this afternoon, centers of learning need somehow to say, to the mind we go through the heart, to the mind we go through love, to the mind we go through friendship, to the mind we go through interconnectedness, through the to the mind we go through compassion, we go through sensitivity, we go through respect, we go through ethics, we go through care. And somehow that which is so profoundly important for human existence has to be brought in. I don't think the universities are the place at the present time that can do it. What a different world it would be if all of you have had the dubious privilege of going to a university and spent that, whatever it is, three-year period in a three-year retreat. What, what a different society we, 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 we would have if um, uh, Harvard uh, uh, universities and these other places with a long-lost soul could uh, actually say awareness, heartfulness, development of the heart is just as important as the acquisition of knowledge and information. Our society would be unrecognizable if we had the spiritual maturity in life to recognize that a human being is a whole being, and therefore heart and mind and awareness and the whole of existence has to be attended to. And we can't just conveniently have this bypass and put everything on the knower and knowledge. Dharma teachings are to touch and bring something else out of us. In this relationship, as I said earlier, sometimes in that relationship of the knower and, uh, and the knowledge, the very knowledge which you and I have acquired about many, many things in life, and no matter how much interest you and I may have, I think we would all agree that what knowledge we have is minuscule in terms of what's available. You and I could specialize in just anything. 
and we'll touch the edge, the tip of the iceberg of what's out there in the field of knowledge. The consequence of all of this is an increasing acknowledgement and recognition from us that we can never know enough. There is always something more to know. And the problematic aspect of all of this is that the amount of knowledge which we are exposed to, the poor old mind cannot keep pace with. Therefore, the knower is under the burden of more knowledge than can be absorbed. And many people are telling me again and again, Christopher, if I go out of my field for one or two years, it's extremely hard to get back into it because I'm so far behind. Some of you know this far, far better than I. So something about this relationship to knowledge and bringing in the heart to attend to the movement has to be more in place in our life. That may require from us, in our looking into this, since so much knowledge is available, I'm going to have to employ and use, as the Dharma teachings say, some discernment of mind of what knowledge is truly valuable, is heartfelt in terms of its nourishment, and is contributing to living wisely. What knowledge has a potential to touch the heart, feel, this important thing, feel nourishing, and bring about a greater awareness and wisdom in life. Some of you who are cursed with this mantra of back to school may need to rethink more carefully what that means and will the heart be nourished if you enter into the in, a, in an intensive situation of the pursuit in a concentrated form of knowledge for a role in time. We have to consider, to repeat, what the influence of that will be in terms of nourishment of the heart if you're going to put yourself in an environment of concentration for the pursuit of knowledge to secure a role. If the heart is neglected in this period of time, the knowledge is not serving you, it's harming. The effect of which is physical at times, the effect of which is feeling unhappy, insecure, stressed. All of that is signs that somewhere there's some neglect of heartfulness going on. In the willingness to sense and feel the restriction that can take place, 
Dharma teachings and practices remind us of a fresh way of looking. And the fresh way of looking for us is to see what do I concentrate my mind on? Where do I pursue knowledge? Is the knowledge helpful? There is very little in the San Francisco Chronicle which is of any real importance to anyone. (laughs) It will not be of much assistance in your life. You could go the next three years without picking it up. I promise you, you won't miss anything. Anything you need to know which is important, will be passed along in a one-line sentence on the gossip chain. And that's more than enough. And sometimes we say, oh, no, 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 I I like to keep up with the news. (laughs) The inner life cannot keep up with it. The news is that there is suffering and there are new names every day for it. And it's recycled. And that's the primary news that one reads. The consequence of absorbing that amount of knowledge day in and day out, the accumulation of that doesn't help to be happy. It doesn't help to keep the heart warm and, and, and open. And we end up reading newspapers and the news, etc., etc., so much, and the force of habit, it becomes a kind of painful, pleasurable entertainment. There could be better things that we could do with our life than pick up this newspaper. It could be that if one just put aside that, or just made it once a week, or once a month, or whatever, we may possibly gain access to a knowing which is different from the information. If we're willing for a little renunciation, a willingness to put a little bit aside, a willingness to cut the supply line for knowledge, 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 maybe in some other way, some other knowing can come to us. Dharma teachings, keenly interested in knowing, keenly interested. With awareness, and I'm sure we can all in our own life uh, reflect and connect on this, sometimes we bring awareness to something we have an interest in. And you and I have said to ourselves, I'd like to know more about this, whatever the this is, including meditation, retreats, etc. 
The awareness helps to reveal, this is the important thing here, helps to reveal initially what we are interested in. Then, as I said, from the awareness, we begin, by necessity, to concentrate the mind, put the focus towards, and learn about. And that gives support to the sense of being a knower in relationship to things, and when we know enough about something, or a reasonable amount, it can bring for the knower a certain confidence, and for the knower of that, a certain authority. So there's a movement of the inner life, focusing upon knowledge coming, giving support to the knower, the knower gets established, and with the knower, there comes about some authority. I, whoever he is in this case, I know, shall we say, I'm the knower of the Dharma, last uh, 30 years daily exp- exposure to it in a whole variety of, of ways, and that gives uh, support, and through that support, there's whatever, some small agreement, oh, there's some authority here. And you, as we heard with the go-around today, we have our various forms of authority. And there's the knower. We have to be vigilant with the knower because it's vulnerable. Many voices of authority in this room. It's vulnerable to ego, which can begin to boost up the knower, and then the knower becomes conceited. It becomes arrogant. It becomes self-righteous. It becomes patronizing. So if we are a voice of authority in a specific field with knowledge there, which gives support, it takes, is the important thing here, from a Dharma perspective, an awareness of what way we deal with the knowledge. What is the relationship to the knowledge? What does it do to the eye? Just this teaching was applied and practiced and explored and in some insight in our universities. We wouldn't have this monstrous society that we uh, uh, live in, with huge egos controlling and dominating it. So this movement of the knowledge to, the, to awareness, to knowing, to knower, and what goes with it. Sometimes fear accompanies the authority. And the self, rather than boosting itself up as the knower, as the authority, actually keeps feeding from the pattern, it keeps feeding doubt into it. Then one feels, I'm never good enough, I never know enough, I never say it rightly, I'm I never under, I'm never understood. And so there's a constant undermining of the sense of authority, so the ego can easily go in one of two directions. With the knowledge and with the knower, boosting oneself up or putting oneself down. Therefore, the authority has no peace because it's buffeted, it's pushed up and down by other forces. 
The consequences of that is personal, social, political, economic, global. The movement of this force up and down. So it takes for us not only awareness of what we concentrate on, not only how we receive the knowledge from the books, from the lecturers, from listening, whatever the, from the net, whatever the form, but what the effect of it is on the sense of I. This is, an, I would say, an urgent human exploration. Because more knowledge fed with egos means more power, more control, more oppression. Therefore, more fear, more inhibitions, more anxiety, and more depression for those who are oppressed. Just through the knowledge and the authoritarian, the ego that goes with it. So it takes this duality, this relationship of knowledge to the knower, takes a lot of exploration with ourselves. Not easy. One of the factors which help with that exploration, as I said earlier, is the ability to bring heartfulness in that movement between the knowledge and the knower. If one brings in kindness to it, meta-meditations, as we say here, if one brings in kindness to it, it will have a demonstrably significant influence on what we wish to know about, how we receive it, that knowledge, and what we do with it. Love is the factor of the heart which makes for a movement to the knowledge, to the knower of the knowledge, and to its expression in our life. Love it links that up together. Without the love, we're alienated. And then the knowledge can be used in all sorts of unsatisfactory ways personally, socially, scientifically, religiously, etc. So that element, profound element in life, of awareness, is the element of life of human beings which we have, which beautifully and extraordinarily allows us to shed light on our situation and on what we do with our life, and particularly our relationship to knowledge. The blind pursuit of knowledge perpetuates ignorance. As my Ajahn Buddhadasa, my old uh, 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 teacher and the, 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 the radical reformer of Thai Buddhism of the 20th century, once commented to me, he said, he said to me, this world won't be destroyed through ignorances such. It, we will destroy this world through our cleverness. We have become too clever for our own good, too clever for the good of the earth, too clever for land, water and air. The knowledge is out of place with profound connectedness, along which, as Shada was saying in her talk yesterday evening, love is the expression of that connectedness. Somewhere we've got to find ways to bring knowledge and the heart, the mind and the heart together. Got to bring them back together and 
and move together in life. Otherwise, as a species, we're finished. It's that serious. Sometimes you hear A couple of nights ago, if I recall, um, I, I was speaking to, speaking to you about the, uh, the importance of um, not being trapped in the personality issues. It, like other things in life, can and does become uh, a restriction to our awareness. We could be so preoccupied with having everything right with our personality. I went into all of that. The element of awareness, the most precious element in the Dharma teachings, the most significant element of the psyche, because it, 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 the light of awareness sheds light upon. It reveals. It makes things stand clear. And that gives us opportunity. In that shedding light, that awareness, which uh, shed lights upon all these movements and activities that we have, intentions, action, and result, as I just spoke to you, spoke to you about. In the movement of all of that, sometimes in the attention which is given to that, we may, it's been said different ways over the days, need to remember that the knower and the knowledge, the known, the meeting of those two has appropriately a certain, as I said, restriction to it. We can only know so much about a certain number of things. Sometimes we are so concentrated in our interest in knowledge to all the means that we have access to, that we forget that perhaps awareness can provide a knowing which is not immediately obvious. We turn our attention to, I repeat, it's not easy to follow these, I know. We turn our attention to an object for knowledge. We try to ensure that the heart is working with that interest. We want to feel that it's valid, it's connected, it's supportive, it's sustainable for life on earth, earth ever. And we put a lot of time, and useful time, in the university, in the college, in practice, in application, in our relationships, because knowledge, the knower, and the love are working together as best we humanly can do it. We make mistakes, we take risks, sometimes it goes wrong, we neglect, we, etc. But the heart's essentially in the right place in this relationship. But, and it's an important but, sometimes you and I, in our dedication and commitment to the knower, the caring, the heart, and the knowledge and the known, Sometimes we can be so focused on that, we could end up with an idea, perhaps, or a conclusion, or a blind spot, 
that that's all that awareness can reveal. Matters of the heart, matters of knowledge, matters of action, and matters of result. That we think life just keeps, awareness just keeps revealing in different ways that process. But I say, it, not to set such a restriction on awareness. What would it be if all the knowledge and all the knowing and all the authority that you and I might have in our life is kind of made, at times, secondary so that we can sense what is this awareness, this light which keeps revealing, reveals who we are, what we are like, it reveals what's going on around us, we use information to seem, uh, in support that awareness. What would it be if it's just an awareness of itself? Sometimes, as you have heard here and elsewhere, There are experiences which take place, and they've been reported here in previous retreats and in people's daily lives, and through all sorts of circumstances. But sometimes a kind of, for want of a better word, trans-awareness, a bigger awareness than just our life. And the description that does come is an awareness which is very expansive, very, uh, maybe very open, vast, and our mind seems to, as it were, at that time, shrink in all of its apparent importance, all that we know ourselves to be in terms of our, our life from past to present, it seems to shrink at that time, and there's a very expanded sense of awareness and uh, openness and connectedness and many important, profound, uh, significant descriptions can be given. Even in such an opened-out awareness that takes place, it's not separate from your life or from my life. So in that there is the fading, and the fading may just be through the energy fading, not through any disinterest, just the energy fades, and, one, and in its uh, fading, one says, my goodness, I remember, I just had, I'm having, extraordinary, expensive experience, seems much bigger than my poor, s small self, and there's much appreciation for it. For, uh, for it. Sometimes we can end up with a view that there's the experience, there is a knowledge about it through experience, but with a view, how or can I get back to that as though that's the place to be? Because it does seem bigger than oneself. And then others hear of such experiences and we'll say, well, I haven't had such an experience. 
others have had it, why haven't I uh, had it, etc. And very easy, even there is the seeking for the experience or some bigger experience, and the gap is set again. This case, there is the idea of what is sought, called an experience of that order, and there is the seeker. The inner life has done exactly the same. Started off the knower who wants to gain knowledge to reach the known. That fades. One enters into the Dharma world. One isn't so interested in the pursuit of knowledge. There is the seeker now. And there is the sort, which is called nirvana, which is called the expansive, which is called the immeasurable, which is called the ultimate. And there is the seeker. And then trying to find ways for the seeker to be united with the sort. What we do in the university, what we do in the job, we end up doing in the meditation hall as well. It's a slight variation on the theme. The uniting of the seeker with the sought. Dharma teachings point out, from the Buddha here now, you don't have to do it. <laughs> Basically. One doesn't have to have any so-called mystical, transcendental, out of your mind, blowing your mind, experience. It doesn't make that the object for the Dharma life. No matter how attractive it may sound, and no matter how many experiences that you have unfortunately read about, <laughs> or even heard about, mostly second-hand, third-hand, or whatever, that gap of the sought and the seeker in its meeting together, can easily repeat the history, and the history then can be, oh, the seeker and the sort came together, I wanted this profound experience, I wanted something really big to happen to me, uh, etc. Then there's the unity, and then the self can come back in very quickly on that, and the conceit can arise, Ego can then build itself up on, I had this spiritual experience, and then one becomes a missionary for it, and uh, 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 etc. Or, the mind, the self, grasps onto that, it then holds onto that, and then after a period of time, the mind starts moving, little anguish or distress or suffering is created, or whatever, and then one takes the view, maybe that 
wasn't it? <laughs> Maybe I deceived myself and I shouldn't have written that book about it. <laughs> so, there's meeting that go, takes place. Self easily arises, and then the boosting up or the deflating start, easily starts hap- happening again. What would it be, though, to take no real interest in the grand experience? <laughs> and therefore not have to deal with the consequences of it. Either trying to persuade others that one's had it, (laughs) or persuade oneself. And therefore, could it possibly be, we could look at, as the uh, Buddha uh, points to, what is the sense of knowing? Knowing. The knowing doesn't really bear any relationship to the known, in this case called a temporary experience, in this case called acquisition of knowledge, because all of that seems to be held in time. And also, the knowing, in the knowing, it seems inappropriate for the eye to fasten onto the knowing and therefore become the knower. Could there just be a knowing which is steady in the depth of being and that knowing is of such an order in the human being that there's no room for the knower to latch onto it and become the knower, either boosting up or putting down. Could there, what would that knowing be? Which isn't to be found in the books, isn't to be found in the university, isn't to be found in the pursuit of knowledge, nor is it to be found in the pursuit of experience. What is the core knowing that matters? free from the bondage and the imprisonment of the known, called knowledge, or thing, and from the knower who gets caught up with it. What's the one thing in life truly worth regularly about this knowing? What is this knowing? It of itself is a, a meditation. It's, it's a, a contemplation about the way things are. And that knowing, which is discoverable, which has no special feature to it, is of such, um, how should we say, of such a dimension to it that knowledge and known 
a minor, and it carries with it some genuine, natural, organic sense of freedom through the knowing. It carries with it a communication of freedom through the knowing. In the interest in this knowing, the sweet and um, truly precious aspect of it is there is nothing that we need to confirm. Sometimes we listen to the evening talk. Could be like the talk a couple of nights ago. It says, oh, there is a transpersonal discovery uh, with no limitations, limitless. And very easily, one can listen and then convert the listening to a knowledge. And then the outcome of that is, if I sit more, if I meditate more, then perhaps I will have this experience, which is bigger than the personality, which is expansive, which is free, which is limitless, which is being with God, being with the truth of, of, of things. And that's what happens is, we listened, we gained some knowledge of the potential, and then we wish to actualize that potential through meditation to confirm it for ourselves. And how easily the listening, it keeps doing that because we've got used to doing that. We've got used to being in the classroom. We've got used to being told how to. So we tend to find ourselves listening and then keeping deeply, perhaps, the information which comes to us with a view to having that experience in our meditation or in our day to confirm what we have listened to. The Buddha makes, makes it absolutely clear this sequence of events is not necessary. That's why one will see from the talks, from the sutras, and from many generations as well, that the actual listening itself, it is enough. And it doesn't have to be any wish to memorize, to convert to an experience on the cushion or walking meditation or whatever. What that means is that in the listening itself, the knowing can be established and in the knowing, the core sense of the knowing is that one is a free human being. One knows it. Knowing it so well that mind can move in its way, sometimes with ego, sometimes without, it's okay. Experiences, as it were, greater than the mind, can take place like I described, and it's okay. 
They don't take place. One never has such an expansive experience. It's still okay. There is a knowing which is not bound to knowledge, nor to experience. And many times in the sutras and the, uh, of, of the Buddha, many, many occasions, the re- response that came was, there was the listening and the supreme knowing arose in the listening. And nothing to do afterwards. And that's why the, the, in the mode of the communication of the Dharma, such emphasis is placed on the oral communication. It has its own potential for a human's life. And there's nothing for the ego, I, and my to grasp onto because it's a bare knowing. In that bare, bare knowing, there's a freedom, there's a deep connectedness, and the heart responds in appropriate and skillful ways, quite naturally and easily. So if when we listen to the Dharma this evening and uh, on other occasions, it's to listen as though there is no after. There is nothing to do afterwards. That the act itself is its own completion, is its own human fulfillment. The act of the listening is enough. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings shed light on things. May all beings abide with a steadfast knowing of freedom. Let's have our two minutes of quiet period together, shall we? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.